0: Welcome to Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing with Book 1, Chapter 13, Section 20, with this reading. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing, and which we pray draws you nearer to the Lord Jesus Christ, for He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by Him. John 14:6. Section 20. Let those then who love soberness, and are contented with the measure of faith, briefly receive what is useful to be known. It is as follows. When we profess to believe in one God, by the name God is understood the one simple essence comprehending three persons are hypostases. And accordingly, whenever the name of God is used indefinitely, the Son and Spirit, not less than the Father, is meant. For When the Son is joined with the Father, relation comes into view, and so we distinguish between the persons. But as the personal subsistences carry an order with them, the principle and origin being in the Father whenever mention is made of the Father and Son, or of the Father and Spirit together, the name of God is specially given to the Father. In this way the unity of essence is retained, and respect is had to the order, which, however, derogates in no respect from the divinity of the Son and Spirit. And surely, since we have already seen how the apostles declare the Son of God to have been He, whom Moses and the prophets declared to be Jehovah, we must always arrive at an unity of essence. We, therefore, hold it detestable blasphemy to call the Son a different God from the Father because the simple name God admits not of relation. Nor can God, considered in himself, be said to be this or that. Then, that the name Jehovah, taken indefinitely, may be applied to Christ, is clear from the words of Paul. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, and giving the answer, quote, my grace is sufficient for thee, he adjoins, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 2 Corinthians 12, 8, and 9. For it is certain that the name of the Lord, Greek word, Kappa, Upsilon, Psi, Iota, Omicron, Upsilon, is there put for Jehovah, and therefore to restrict it to the person of the Mediator. Were puerile and frivolous the words being used absolutely and not with the view of comparing the Father, and the sun. and we know that in accordance with the received usage of the Greeks, the apostles uniformly substitute the word, Greek word, Kappa, Upsilon, Psi, Iota, Omicron, Upsilon, for Jehovah. Not to go far, for an example, Paul besought the Lord in the same sense in which Peter quotes the passage of Joel, quote, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, Acts 2.21, Joel 2.28. Where this name is specially applied to the Son, there is a different ground for it, as will be seen in its own place. At present, it is sufficient to remember that Paul, after praying to God absolutely, immediately subjoins the name of Christ. Thus, too, the Spirit is called God absolutely by Christ himself. For nothing prevents us from holding that he is the entire spiritual essence of God, in which are apprehended Father, Son, and Spirit. This is plain from Scripture. For as God is there called a spirit, so the Holy Spirit also, in so far as he is a hypostasis of the whole essence, is said to be both of God and from God. Section 21 But since Satan, in order to pluck up our faith by the roots, has always provoked fierce disputes partly concerning the divine essence of the Son and Spirit, and partly concerning the distinction of persons, since in almost every age he has stirred up impious spirits to vex the orthodox doctors on this head, and is attempting in the present day to kindle a new flame out of the old embers, it will be proper here to dispose of some of these perverse dreams. Hitherto our chief object has been to stretch out our hand for the guidance of such as are disposed to learn, not to war with the stubborn and contentious. But now the truth, which was calmly demonstrated, must be vindicated from the calumnies of the ungodly. Still, however, it will be our principal study to provide a sure footing for those whose ears are open to the word of God. Here, if anywhere, in considering the hidden mysteries of Scripture, we should speculate soberly, and with great moderation, cautiously guarding against allowing either our mind or our tongue to go a step beyond the confines of God's word, for how can the human mind, which has not yet been able to ascertain of what the body of the sun consists, though it is daily presented to the eye, bring down the boundless essence of God to its little measure? Nay, how can it, under its own guidance, penetrate to a knowledge of the substance of God, while unable to understand its own? Wherefore, let us willingly leave to God the knowledge of himself. In the words of Hilary. He alone is a fit witness to himself who is known only by himself. This knowledge, then, if we would leave to God, we must conceive of him as he has made himself known, and in our inquiries make application to no other quarter than his word. On this subject, we have five homilies of Chrysostom against the animoi, in which he endeavored, but in vain, to check the presumption of the sophists and curb their garrulity that showed no more modesty here than they are wont to do in everything else. The very unhappy results of their temerity should be a warning to us to bring more docility than acumen to the discussion of this question, never to attempt to search after God anywhere but in His sacred word, and never to speak or think of Him farther than we have it for our guide. But if the distinction of Father, Son, and Spirit subsisting in the one Godhead, certainly a subject of great difficulty, gives more trouble and annoyance to some intellects than is meet. Let us remember that the human mind enters a labyrinth whenever it indulges its curiosity, and thus submit to be guided by the divine oracles, how much soever the mystery may be beyond our reach. Section 22 It were tedious, and to no purpose toilsome, to form a catalogue of the errors by which, in regard to this branch of doctrine, the purity of the faith has been assailed. The great part of heretics have with their gross deliriums made a great attack on the glory of God, deeming it enough if they could disturb and shake the unwary. From a few individuals numerous sects have sprung up, some of them rending the divine essence, and others confounding the distinction of persons. But if we hold what has already been demonstrated from Scripture that the essence of the one God pertaining to the Father, Son, and Spirit is simple and indivisible, and again, that the Father differs in some special property from the Son, and the Son from the Spirit, the door will be shut against Arius and Sibelius, as well as other ancient authors of error. But as in our day have arisen certain frantic men, such as Servetus and others, who by new devices have thrown everything into confusion, it may be worth while briefly to discuss their fallacies. The name of Trinity was so much disliked, nay, detested by Servetus, that he charged all whom he called Trinitarians with being atheists. I say nothing of the insulting terms in which he thought proper to make his charges. The sum of his speculations was that a threefold deity is introduced, wherever three persons are said to exist in his essence and that this triad was imaginary, inasmuch as it was inconsistent with the unity of God. At the same time, he would have it that the persons are certain external ideas which do not truly subsist in the divine essence, but only figure God to us under this or that form, that at first indeed there was no distinction in God, because originally the Word was the same as the Spirit. But ever since Christ came forth, God of God, another spirit, also a God, had proceeded from him. But although he sometimes cloaks his absurdities in allegory, as when he says that the eternal word of God was the spirit of Christ with God, and the reflection of the idea, likewise that the spirit was a shadow of deity, he at last reduces the divinity of both to nothing. Maintaining that, according to the mode of distribution, there is a part of God as well in the Son as in the Spirit, just as the same Spirit substantially is a portion of God in us, and also in wood and stone. His absurd babbling concerning the person of the Mediator will be seen in its own place. The monstrous fiction that a person is nothing else than a visible appearance of the glory of God needs not a long refutation. For when John declares that before the world was created, the Logos was God, John 1.1, 1, 1, he shows that he was something very different from an idea. But if even then, and from the remotest eternity, that Logos, who was God, was with the Father, and had its own distinct and peculiar glory with the Father, John 17.5, he certainly could not be an external or figurative splendor but must necessarily have been a hypostasis which dwelt inherently in God himself. But although there is no mention made of the spirit antecedent to the account of the creation, he is not there introduced as a shadow, but as the essential power of God, where Moses relates that the shapeless mass was upborne by him. Genesis 1-2 It is obvious that THE ETERNAL SPIRIT ALWAYS EXISTED IN GOD, SAYING HE CHERISHED AND SUSTAINED THE CONFUSED MATERIALS OF HEAVEN AND EARTH BEFORE THEY POSSESSED ORDER OR BEAUTY. ASSUREDLY, HE COULD NOT THEN BE AN IMAGE OR REPRESENTATION OF GOD AS surveyed us DREAMS. BUT HE IS ELSEWHERE FORCED TO MAKE A MORE OPEN DISCLOSURE OF HIS IMPIETY WHEN HE SAYS, THE GOD BY HIS ETERNAL REASON decreeing A SON TO HIMSELF IN THIS WAY ASSUMED A VISIBLE APPEARANCE. Or if this be true, no other divinity is left to Christ than is implied in his having been ordained a son by God's eternal decree. Moreover, those phantoms which Servetus substitutes for the hypostasis he so transforms as to make new changes in God, but the most execrable heresy of all is his confounding both of son and spirit promiscuously. For he distinctly asserts that there are parts and partitions in the essence of God, and that every such portion is God. This he does especially when he says that the spirits of the faithful are co-eternal and consubstantial with God, although he elsewhere assigns a substantial divinity not only to the soul of man, but to all created things. Section 23 This pool has bred another monster not unlike the former. For certain, restless spirits, unwilling to share the disgrace and obloquy of the impiety of Servetus, have confessed that there were indeed three persons, but added as a reason that the Father, who alone is truly and properly God, transfused His divinity into the Son and Spirit when He formed them. Nor do they refrain from expressing themselves in such shocking terms as these, that the Father is essentially distinguished from the Son and Spirit by this, that He is the only Essentiator. Their first pretext for this is that Christ is uniformly called the Son of God. From this they infer that there is no proper God but the Father. But they forget that, although the name of God is common also to the Son, yet it is sometimes, by way of excellence, ascribed to the Father as being the source and principle of divinity. And this is done in order to mark the simple unity of essence. They object that if the Son is truly God... He must be deemed the Son of a person, which is absurd. I answer that both are true, namely that He is the Son of God, because He is the Word, begotten of the Father before all ages, for we are not now speaking of the person of the Mediator. And yet, that for the purpose of explanation regard must be had to the person, so that the name of God may not be understood in its absolute sense, but as equivalent to Father. For if we hold that there is no other God than the Father, this rank is clearly denied to the Son. In every case where the Godhead is mentioned, we are by no means to admit that there is an antithesis between the Father and the Son, as if to the former only the name of God could competently be applied. For assuredly the God who appeared to Isaiah was the one true God, and yet John declares that he was Christ. Isaiah 6, John 12:41. He who declared by the mouth of Isaiah that he was to be, quote, for a stone of stumbling, unquote, to the Jews, was the one God, and yet Paul declares that he was Christ. Isaiah 8:14, Romans 9:33. He who proclaims by Isaiah, quote, unto me every knee shall bow, unquote, is the one God, yet Paul again explains that he is Christ. Isaiah 45.23 Romans 14.11 To this we may add the passages quoted by an apostle, quote, Thou, Lord, hast laid the foundations of the earth. Quote, Let all the angels of God worship Him. Unquote. Hebrews 1.10 10.6 10, Psalm 102.26 97.7 All these apply to the one God, and yet the Apostle contends that they are the proper attributes of Christ. There is nothing in the cattle that what properly applies to God is transferred to Christ, because He is the brightness of His glory. Since the name of Jehovah is everywhere applied to Christ, it follows that, in regard to deity, He is of Himself. For if He is Jehovah, it is impossible to deny that He is the same God who elsewhere proclaims by Isaiah, I am the first, and I am the last and besides me there is no God unquote. Isaiah forty four six. We would also do well to ponder the words of Jeremiah quote, The gods that have not made the heavens and the earth even they shall perish from the earth and from under these heavens Jeremiah 10.11 Once it follows conversely that he whose divinity Isaiah repeatedly proves from the creation of the world is none other than the Son of God And how is it possible that the Creator, who gives to all, should not be of Himself, but should borrow His essence from another? Whosoever says that the Son was essentiated by the Father denies His self-existence. Against this, however, the Holy Spirit protests when He calls Him Jehovah. On the supposition, then, that the whole essence is in the Father only, the essence becomes divisible, or is denied to the Son, who being thus robbed of his essence, will be only a titular God. If we are to believe these triflers, divine essence belongs to the Father only, on the ground that he is sole God and essentiator of the Son. In this way, the divinity of the Son will be something abstracted from the essence of God, or the derivation of a part from the whole. On the same principle, it must also be conceded that the Spirit belongs to the Father only, For if the derivation is from the primacy essence, which is proper to none but the Father, the Spirit cannot justly be deemed the Spirit of the Son. This view, however, is refuted by the testimony of Paul, when he makes the Spirit common both to Christ and the Father. Moreover, if the person of the Father is expunged from the Trinity, in what will he differ from the Son and the Spirit except in being the only God? They confess that Christ is God. And that he differs from the Father. If he differs, there must be some mark of distinction between them. Those who place it in the essence manifestly reduce the true divinity of Christ to nothing, since divinity cannot exist without essence, and indeed without entire essence. The Father certainly cannot differ from the Son, unless he has something peculiar to himself and not common to him with the Son. What then do these men show as the mark of distinction? If it is in the essence, let them tell whether or not he communicated essence to the Son. This he could not do in part merely, for it were impious to think of a divided God. And besides, on this supposition, there would be a rending of the divine essence. The whole entire essence must therefore be common to the Father and the Son. And if so, in respect of essence, there is no distinction between them. If they reply that the Father, while essentiating, still remains the only God, being the possessor of the essence, then Christ will be a figurative God, one in name or semblance only, and not in reality, because no property can be more peculiar to God than essence, according to the words, quote, I am hath sent me unto you, unquote. Exodus 3.4 Section 24 THE ASSUMPTION THAT WHENEVER GOD IS MENTIONED ABSOLUTELY THE FATHER ONLY IS meant, MAY BE PROVED erroneous BY MANY PASSAGES. EVEN IN THOSE WHICH THEY QUOTE IN SUPPORT OF THEIR VIEWS THEY BETRAY A LAMENTABLE INCONSISTENCY BECAUSE THE NAME OF SON OCCURS THERE BY WAY OF CONTRAST, SHOWING THAT THE OTHER NAME GOD IS USED RELATIVELY AND IN THAT WAY CONFINED TO THE PERSON OF THE FATHER. THEIR OBJECTION MAY BE DISPOSED OF IN A SINGLE WORD. WERE NOT THE FATHER ALONE THE TRUE GOD, HE WOULD, SAY THEY, BE HIS OWN FATHER. BUT THERE IS NOTHING ABSURD IN THE NAME OF GOD BEING SPECIALLY APPLIED IN RESPECT OF ORDER AND degree TO HIM, NOT ONLY OF HIMSELF beget HIS OWN WISDOM, BUT IS THE GOD OF THE MEDIATOR, AS I WILL MORE FULLY SHOW IN ITS OWN PLACE. FOR EVER SINCE CHRIST WAS MANIFESTED IN THE FLESH, HE IS CALLED THE SON OF GOD. NOT ONLY BECAUSE BEGOTTEN OF THE FATHER BEFORE ALL WORLDS HE WAS THE ETERNAL WORD, but because he undertook the person and office of the mediator that he might unite us to God. Saying they are so bold in excluding the Son from the honor of God, I would fain know whether, when he declares that there is quote, none good but one that is God. Unquote. He deprives himself of goodness. I speak not of his human nature, lest perhaps they should object that whatever goodness was in it was derived by gratuitous gift, I ask whether the eternal word of God is good, yes or no. If they say no, their impiety is manifest. If yes, they refute themselves. Christ's seeming at the first glance to disclaim the name of good, Matthew nineteen seventeen, rather confirms our view. Goodness being the special property of God alone, and yet being at the time applied to Him in the ordinary way of salutation, his rejection of false honor intimates that the goodness in which he excels is divine. Again, I ask whether, when Paul affirms that God alone is quote, immortal, wise, and true, First Timothy 1:17, he reduces Christ to the rank of beings mortal, foolish, and false? Is not he immortal who, from the beginning, had life so as to bestow immortality on angels? Is not he wise who is the eternal wisdom of God? Is not he true, who is truth itself? I ask moreover whether they think Christ should be worshipped, if he claims justly that every knee shall bow to him, it follows that he is the God who, in the law, forbade worship to be offered to any but himself. If they insist on applying to the Father only those words of Isaiah, quote, "I am, and besides me, there is none else unquote. isaiah forty four six I turn the passage against themselves since we see that every property of God is attributed to Christ. There is no room for the cavil that Christ was exalted in the flesh, in which he humbled himself, and in the respect of which all power is given to him in heaven and on earth. For although the majesty of king and judge extends to the whole person of the mediator, yet had he not been God manifested in the flesh, he could not have been exalted to such a height without coming into collision with God. And the dispute is admirably settled by Paul when he declares that he was equal with God before he humbled himself and assumed the form of a servant, Philippians 2, 6, and 7. Moreover, how could such equality exist if he were not that God whose name is Jah and Jehovah, who rides upon the cherubim, is king of all the earth and king of ages? Let them clamor, as they may. Christ cannot be robbed of the honor described by Isaiah, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him. Isaiah 25.9 For these words describe the advent of God the Redeemer, who was not only to bring back the people from Babylon's captivity, but to restore the church and make her completely perfect. Nor does another cavil avail them that Christ was God and his Father. For though we admit that, in respect of order and gradation, the beginning of divinity is in the Father, we hold it a detestable fiction to maintain that essence is proper to the Father alone, as if he were the deifier of the Son. On this view, either the essence is manifold, or Christ is God only in name and imagination. If they grant that the Son is God, but only in subordination to the Father, the essence which is in the Father is unformed and unbegotten; will in Him be formed and begotten. I know that many who would be thought wise deride us for extracting the distinction of persons from the words of Moses when He introduces God as saying, quote, "Let us make man in our own image." Unquote, Genesis 1:26 pious readers, however, see how frigidly and absurdly the colloquy were introduced by Moses if there were not several persons in the Godhead. It is certain that those whom the Father addresses must have been uncreated. But nothing is uncreated except the one God. Now then, unless they concede that the power of creating was common to the Father, Son, and Spirit, and the power of commanding common, it will follow that God did not speak thus inwardly with himself, but addressed other extraneous architects, in fine, there is a single passage which will at once dispose of these two objections. The declaration of Christ, that, quote, God is a spirit, John 4.24, cannot be confined to the Father only, as if the word were not of a spiritual nature. But if the name spirit applies equally to the Son as to the Father, I infer that under the indefinite name of God the Son is included. He adds immediately after that the only worshippers approved by the Father are those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. And hence I also infer that because Christ performs the office of teacher under a head, He applies the name God to the Father, not for the purpose of destroying His own divinity, but for the purpose of raising us up to it, as it were, step by step. Section 25 The hallucination consists in dreaming of individuals, each of whom possesses a part of the essence. The scriptures teach that there is essentially but one God, and therefore that the essence both of the Son and Spirit is unbegotten. But inasmuch as the Father is first in order, and of himself begat his own wisdom, he, as we lately observed, is justly regarded as the principle and fountain of all the Godhead. Thus God, taken indefinitely, is unbegotten, the Father in respect of his person is unbegotten. For it is absurd to imagine that our doctrine gives any ground for alleging that we establish a quaternion of gods. They falsely and calumniously ascribe to us the figment of their own brain, as if we virtually held that three persons emanate from one essence, whereas it is plain, from our writings, that we do not disjoin the persons from the essence, but interpose a distinction between the persons residing in it if the persons were separated from the essence, there might be some plausibility in their argument. As in this way, there would be a trinity of gods, not of persons comprehended in one god. This affords an answer to their futile question, whether or not the essence concurs in forming the trinity. As if we imagined the three gods were derived from it, their objection that there would be thus a trinity without a god originates in the same absurdity. Although the essence does not contribute to the distinction, as if it were a part or member, the persons are not without it are external to it. For the Father, if he were not God, could not be the Father. Nor could the Son possibly be Son, unless he were God. We say, then, that the Godhead is absolutely of itself, and hence also we hold that the Son, regarded as God, and without reference to person, is also of himself. Though we also say that, regarded as Son, he is of the Father. Thus his essence is without beginning, while his person has its beginning in God. And, indeed, the orthodox writers who in former times spoke of the Trinity used this term only with reference to the persons. To have included the essence in the distinction would not only have been an absurd error, but gross impiety. For those who class the three thus, Essence, Son, and Spirit, plainly do away with the essence of the Son and Spirit. Otherwise, the parts being intermingled would merge into each other, a circumstance which would vitiate any distinction. In short, if God and Father were synonymous terms, the Father would be deifier in a sense which would leave the Son nothing but a shadow, and the Trinity would be nothing more than the union of one God with two creatures. SECTION 26 The objection that if Christ be properly God, he is improperly called the Son of God, it has been already answered that when one person is compared with another, the name God is not used indefinitely, but is restricted to the Father, regarded as the beginning of the Godhead, not by essentiating, as fanatics absurdly express it, but in respect of order. In this sense are to be understood the words which Christ addressed to the Father This is life eternal that they might know thee the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. John seventeen three. For speaking in the person of the Mediator, he holds a middle place between God and man, yet so that his majesty is not diminished thereby. For though he humbled, emptied himself, he did not lose the glory which he had with the Father, though he was concealed from the world, so in the epistle to the Hebrews, Hebrews 1, 10, 2, 9, though the Apostle confesses that Christ was made a little lower than the angels, he at the same time hesitates not to assert that he is the eternal God who founded the earth. We must hold, therefore, that as often as Christ in the character of meteor addresses the Father, he, under the term God, includes his own divinity also. Thus, when he says to the Apostles, quote, "...it is expedient for you that I go away, unquote, quote, My father is greater than I, He does not attribute to himself a secondary divinity merely, as if, in regard to eternal essence, he were inferior to the father. But having obtained celestial glory, he gathers together the faithful to share it with him. He places the father in the higher degree, inasmuch as the full perfection of brightness conspicuous in heaven differs from that measure of glory which he himself displayed when clothed in flesh. For the same reason Paul says that Christ will restore, quote, the kingdom to God, even the Father, unquote, quote, that God may be all in all, unquote. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, 28. Nothing can be more absurd than to deny the perpetuity of Christ's divinity. But if he will never cease to be the Son of God, but will ever remain the same that he was from the beginning, it follows that under the name of God, the one divine essence common to both is comprehended. And assuredly, Christ descended to us for the very purpose of raising us to the Father, and thereby, at the same time, raising us to himself, inasmuch as he is one with the Father. It is therefore erroneous and impious to confine the name of God to the Father, so as to deny it to the Son. Accordingly, John, declaring that he is the true God, has no idea of placing him beneath the Father in a subordinate rank of divinity. I wonder what these fabricators of new gods mean when they confess that Christ is truly God, and yet exclude him from the Godhead of the Father, as if there could be any true God but the one God, or as if transfused divinity were not a mere modern fiction. Section 27. In the many passages which they collect from Irenaeus, in which he maintains that the Father of Christ is the only eternal God of Israel, they betray shameful ignorance or very great dishonesty. For they ought to have observed that that holy man was contending against certain frantic persons who, denying that the Father of Christ was that God who had in old times spoken by Moses and the prophets, held that he was some phantom or other produced from the pollution of the world. His whole object, therefore, is to make it plain that in the scriptures no other God is announced but the Father of Christ, that it is wicked to imagine any other. Accordingly, there is nothing strange in his, so often concluding that the God of Israel was no other than he who is celebrated by Christ and the apostles. Now, when a different heresy is to be resisted, we also say with truth that the God who in old times appeared to the fathers was no other than Christ. Moreover, if it is objected that he was the Father, we have the answer ready, that while we contend for the divinity of the Son, we by no means exclude the Father the reader attends to the purpose of Arrhenius the dispute is at an end indeed we have only to look in Library 3 Chapter 6 where the pious writer insists on this one point quote, that he who in scripture is called God absolutely and indefinitely is truly the only God and that Christ is called God absolutely unquote. Let us remember, as appears from the whole work, and especially from Library 2, chapter 46, that the point under discussion was that the name of Father is not applied enigmatically and parabolically to one who was not truly God. We may add that in Library 3, chapter 9, he contends that the Son, as well as the Father, united, was the God proclaimed by the prophets and apostles. He afterwards explains, Library 3, Chapter 12, how Christ, who is Lord of all and King and Judge, received power from Him who is God of all, namely, in respect of the humiliation by which He humbled Himself even to the death of the cross. At the same time, He shortly after affirms, Library 3, Chapter 16, that the Son is the Maker, Heaven and Earth, who delivered the law by the hand of Moses and appeared to the fathers should any babbler now insist that, according to Irenaeus, the Father alone is the God of Israel. I will refer him to a passage in which Irenaeus distinctly says, Library 3, Chapter 18 and 23, that Christ is ever one and the same, and also applies to Christ the words of the prophecy of Habakkuk, quote, God cometh from the south, unquote. To the same effect he says, Library 4, Chapter 9, quote, therefore Christ himself with the Father is the God of the living. and in the twelfth chapter of the same book he explains that Abraham believed God because Christ is the maker of heaven and earth and very God section 28 with no more truth do they claim Tertullian as a patron though his style is sometimes rugged and obscure he delivers the doctrine which we maintain in no ambiguous manner namely that while there is one God his word however is with dispensation or economy that there is only one God, in unity of substance, but that nevertheless, by the mystery of dispensation, the unity is arranged into Trinity, that there are three, not in state, but in degree, not in substance, but in form, not in power, but in order. He says, indeed, that he holds the Son to be second to the Father, but he means that the only difference is by distinction. In one place he says the Son is visible, but after he has discoursed in both views, he declares that he is indivisible regarded as the word. In fine, by affirming that the Father is characterized by his own person, he shows that he is very far from countenancing the fiction which we refute. And although he does not acknowledge any other god than the Father, yet explaining himself in the immediate context, he shows that he does not speak exclusively in respect to the Son, because he denies that he is a different God from the Father, and, accordingly, that the one supremacy is not violated by the distinction of person, and it is easy to collect his meaning from the whole tenor of his discourse, for he contends against Praxeus, that although God has three distinct persons, yet there are not several gods, nor is unity divided. According to the fiction of Praxeus, Christ could not be God without being the Father also, and this is the reason why Tertullian dwells so much on the distinction. When he calls the word and the spirit a portion of the whole, the expression, though harsh, may be allowed since it does not refer to the substance, but only, as Tertullian himself testifies, denotes arrangement and economy, which applies to the persons only. Accordingly, he asks, quote, How many persons, Praxeus, do you think there are, but just as many as there are names for? Unquote. In the same way, he shortly after says, quote, that they may believe the father and the son, each in his own name and person, unquote. These things, I think, sufficiently refute the effrontery of those who endeavor to blind the simple by pretending the authority of Tertullian. Section 29 Assuredly, whosoever will compare the writings of the ancient fathers with each other will not find anything in Arrhenius different from what is taught by those who come after him. Justin is one of the most ancient, and he agrees with us out and out. Let them object that, by him and others, the Father of Christ is called the one God. The same thing is taught by Hilary, who uses the still harsher expression that eternity is in the Father. Is it that he may withhold divine essence from the Son? His whole work is a defense of the doctrine which we maintain. And yet these men are not ashamed to produce some kind of mutilated excerpts for the purpose of persuading us that Hilary is a patron of their heresy. With regard to what they pretend as to Ignatius, if they would have it to be of the least importance let them prove that the apostles enacted laws concerning Lent and other corruptions, nothing can be more nauseating than the absurdities which have been published under the name of Ignatius and therefore the conduct of those who provide themselves with such masks for their deception is the less entitled to toleration moreover the consent of the ancient fathers clearly appears from this that in the council of nice no attempt was made by arius to cloak his heresy by the authority of any approved author and no greek or latin writer apologizes as dissenting from his predecessors It cannot be necessary to observe how carefully Augustine, to whom all these miscreants are most violently opposed, examined all ancient writings, and how reverently he embraced the doctrine talked by them. He is most scrupulous in stating the grounds on which he is forced to differ from them, even in the minutest point. On this subject, too, he finds anything ambiguous or obscure in other writings, he does not disguise it, and he assumes it as an acknowledged fact that the doctrine opposed by the Arians was received without dispute from the earliest antiquity. At the same time, he was not ignorant of what some others had previously taught. This is obvious from a single expression. When he says that, quote, unity is in the Father, will they pretend that he then forgot himself. In another passage, he clears away every such charge when he calls the Father the beginning of the Godhead as being from none thus wisely inferring that the name of God is specially ascribed to the Father, because, unless the beginning were from Him, the simple unity of essence could not be maintained. I hope the pious reader will admit that I have now disposed of all the calumnies by which Satan has hitherto attempted to pervert or obscure the pure doctrine of faith. The whole substance of the doctrine has, I trust, been faithfully expounded, if my readers will set bounds to their curiosity and not long more eagerly than they ought for perplexing disputation. I did not undertake to satisfy those who delight in speculative views, but I have not decidedly omitted anything which I thought adverse to me. At the same time, studying the edification of the church, I have thought it better not to touch on various topics which could have yielded a little profit, while they must have needlessly burdened and fatigued the reader. For instance... What avails it to discuss, as Lombard does at length, whether or not the Father always generates? This idea of continual generation becomes an absurd fiction from the moment it is seen, that from eternity there were three persons in one God. Chapter 14 In the creation of the world, and all things in it, the true God distinguished by certain marks from fictitious gods. There are twenty-two sections. Section 1 Although Isaiah justly charges the worshippers of false gods with stupidity, and not learning from the foundations of the earth and the circle of the heavens who the true God is, Isaiah 40.21, yet so sluggish and groveling is our intellect that it was necessary he should be more clearly depicted in order that the faithful might not fall away to Gentile fictions. The idea that God is the soul of the world the most tolerable that philosophers have suggested, is absurd, and therefore it was of importance to furnish us with a more intimate knowledge in order that we might not wander to and fro in uncertainty. Hence God was pleased that a history of the creation should exist, a history on which the faith of the Church might lean without seeking any other God than him whom Moses sets forth as the creator and architect of the world. First, in that history, the period of time is marked so as to enable the faithful to ascend by an unbroken succession of years to the first origin of their race and of all things. This knowledge is of the highest use, not only as an antidote to the monstrous fables which anciently prevailed both in Egypt. In other regions of the world but also as a means of giving a clearer manifestation of the eternity of God as contrasted with the birth of creation and thereby inspiring us with higher admiration we must not be moved by the profane jeer that it is strange how it did not sooner occur to the deity to create the heavens and the earth instead of idly allowing an infinite period to pass away DURING WHICH THOUSANDS OF GENERATIONS MIGHT HAVE EXISTED WHILE THE PRESENT WORLD IS DRAWING TO A CLOSE BEFORE IT HAS COMPLETED ITS SIX THOUSANDTH YEAR WHY GOD DELAYED SO LONG IS NEITHER FIT NOR LAWFUL TO inquire. SHOULD THE HUMAN MIND PRESUME TO DO IT IT COULD ONLY FAIL IN THE ATTEMPT NOR WOULD IT BE USEFUL FOR US TO KNOW WHAT GOD AS A TRIAL OF THE MODESTY OF OUR FAITH HAS BEEN PLEASED PURPOSELY TO CONCEAL It was a shrewd saying of a good old man, who, when someone pertly asked in derision what God did before the world was created, answered he made a hell for the inquisitive. This reproof, not less weighty than severe, should repress the tickling wantonness which urges many to indulge in vicious and hurtful speculation. In fine, let us remember that that invisible God, whose wisdom, power, Injustice are incomprehensible, is set before us in the history of Moses as in a mirror, in which his living image is reflected. For as an eye, either dimmed by age or weakened by any other cause, sees nothing distinctly without the aid of glasses, so, such as our imbecility, if Scripture does not direct us in our inquiries after God, we immediately turn vain in our imaginations. Those who now indulge their petulance and refuse to take warning will learn, when too late, how much better it had been reverently to regard the secret counsels of God and to belch forth blasphemies which pollute the face of heaven. Justly does Augustine complain that God is insulted whenever any higher reason than his will is demanded. He also, in another place, wisely reminds us that it is just as improper to raise questions about infinite periods of time as about infinite space. However wide the circuit of the heavens may be, it is of some definite extent. But should any one expostulate with God that vacant space remains exceeding creation by a hundredfold, must not every pious mind detest the presumption similar is the madness of those who charge God with idleness in not having pleased them by creating the world countless ages sooner than he did create it. In their cupidity they affect to go beyond the world as if the ample circumference of heaven and earth did not contain objects numerous and resplendent enough to absorb all our senses, as if in the period of six thousand years God had not furnished facts enough to exercise our minds in ceaseless meditation. Therefore, let us willingly remain hedged in by those boundaries within which God has been pleased to confine our persons, and, as it were, enclose our minds, so as to prevent them from losing themselves by wandering unrestrained. Section 2. With the same view, Moses relates that the work of creation was accomplished not in one moment, but in six days. By this statement we are drawn away from fiction to the one God, who thus divided his work into six days, that we may have no reluctance to devote our whole lives to the contemplation of it. For though our eyes, in what direction soever they turn, are forced to behold the works of God, we see how fleeting our attention is, and how quickly pious thoughts, if any arise, vanish away. Here, too, objection is taken to these progressive steps, as inconsistent with the power of God, until human reason is subdued to the obedience of faith and learns to welcome the calm quiescence to which the sanctification of the seventh day invites us. In the very order of events, we ought diligently to ponder on the paternal goodness of God toward the human race, in not creating Adam until he had liberally enriched the earth with all good things had he placed him on an earth barren and unfurnished had he given life before light he might have seemed to pay little regard to his interest but now that he has arranged the motions of the sun and stars for man's use has replenished the air, earth, and water with living creatures, and produced all kinds of fruit in abundance for the supply of food. By performing the office of a provident and industrious head of a family, he has shown his wondrous goodness toward us. These subjects, which I only briefly touch, if more attentively pondered, will make manifest that Moses was a sure witness and herald of the one, only, Creator." I do not repeat what I have already explained, these, that mention is here made not of the bare essence of God, but that His eternal wisdom and spirit are also set before us, in order that we may not dream of any other God than Him who desires to be recognized in that express image. Section 3 But before I begin to treat more fully of the nature of man, it will be proper to say something of angels. For, although Moses, in accommodation to the ignorance of the generality of men, does not in the history of the creation make mention of any other works of God than those which meet our eye, yet, seeing he afterwards introduces angels as the ministers of God, we easily infer that he for whom they do service is their creator. Hence, though Moses, speaking in popular language, Did not at the very commencement enumerate the angels among the creatures of God, nothing prevents us from treating distinctly and explicitly of what is delivered by Scripture concerning them in other places. For if we desire to know God by his works, we surely cannot overlook this noble and illustrious specimen. We may add that this branch of doctrine is very necessary for the refutation of numerous errors the minds of many are so struck with the excellence of angelic natures that they would think them insulted in being subjected to the authority of God, and so made subordinate. Hence a fancied divinity has been assigned to them. Means, too, has arisen from his sect, fabricating to himself two principles, God and the devil, attributing the origin of good things to God, but assigning all bad natures to the devil as their author, for this delirium to take possession of our minds, God would be denied his glory in the creation of the world. For, saying there is nothing more peculiar to God than eternity and Greek word Alpha, epsilon Tau, Delta, epsilon Sigma, Iota, Alpha, that is, self-existence, or existence of himself, if I may so speak, do not those who attribute it to the devil in some degree invest him with the honor of divinity? And where is the omnipotence of God, if the devil has the power of executing whatever he pleases against the will, and, notwithstanding, of the opposition of God? But the only good ground which the Manichees have, viz that it were impious to ascribe the creation of anything bad to a good God, militates in no degree against the orthodox faith, since it is not admitted that there is anything naturally bad throughout the universe. The depravity and wickedness, whether of man or of the devil, and the sins thence resulting, being not from nature but from the corruption of nature, nor at first did anything whatever exist that did not exhibit some manifestation of the divine wisdom and justice, to obviate such perverse imaginations, we must raise our minds higher than our eyes can penetrate. It was probably with this view that the Nicene Creed, in calling God the Creator of all things, makes express mention of things invisible. My care, however, must be to keep within the bounds which piety prescribes, lest by indulging in speculations beyond my reach I bewilder the reader and lead him away from the simplicity of the faith. Since the Holy Spirit always instructs us in what is useful— but altogether omits, or only touches cursorily on matters which tend little to edification of all such matters, it certainly is our duty to remain in willing ignorance. Section 4 Angels being the ministers appointed to execute the commands of God, must of course be admitted to be his creatures, but to stir up questions concerning the time or order in which they were created bespeaks more perverseness than industry. Moses relates that the heavens and the earth were finished with all their host. What avails it anxiously to inquire at what time other more hidden celestial hosts than the stars and planets also began to be? Not to dwell on this, let us here remember that on the whole subject of religion one rule of modesty and soberness is to be observed, and it is this: in obscure matters, not to speak or think or even long to know more than the Word of God has delivered. A second rule is that in reading the scriptures we should constantly direct our inquiries and meditations to those things which tend to edification, not indulge in curiosity or in studying things of no use. And since the Lord has been pleased to instruct us not in frivolous questions, but in solid piety, in the fear of His name, in true faith, and the duties of holiness, let us rest satisfied with such knowledge. Wherefore, if we would be duly wise, we must renounce those vain babblings of idle men concerning the nature, ranks, and number of angels without any authority from the Word of God. I know that many fasten on these topics more eagerly, and take greater pleasure in them than in those relating to daily practice. But if we decline not to be the disciples of Christ, let us not decline to follow the method which he has prescribed. In this way, being contented with him for our master, we will not only refrain from, but even feel averse to, superfluous speculations which he discourages. None can deny that Dionysius, whoever he may have been, has many shrewd and subtle disquisitions in his celestial hierarchy, but on looking at them more closely, every one must see that they are merely idle talk. The duty of a theologian, however, is not to tickle the ear but confirm the conscience by teaching what is true certain and useful when you read the work of Dionysius you would think that the man had come down from heaven and was relating not what he had learned but what he had actually seen Paul however though he was carried to the third heaven so far from delivering anything of the kind positively declares that it was not lawful for man to speak the secrets which he had seen Bidding adieu, therefore, to that nugatory wisdom, let us endeavor to ascertain from the simple doctrine of Scripture what it is the Lord's pleasure that we should know concerning angels. Section 5 In Scripture, then, we uniformly read that angels are heavenly spirits whose obedience and ministry God employs to execute all the purposes which He has decreed, and hence their name as being a kind of intermediate messengers to manifest His will to men. The names by which several of them are distinguished have reference to the same office. They are called hosts because they surround their prince as his court, adorn and display his majesty, like soldiers have their eyes always turned to their leader's standard and are so ready and prompt to execute his orders that the moment he gives the nod, they prepare for, or rather are actually at work. In declaring the magnificence of the divine throne, Similar representations are given by the prophets, and especially by Daniel, when he says that when God stood up to judgment, thousands, thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. Daniel 7.10. As by these means the Lord wonderfully exerts and declares the power and might of his hand, they are called virtues. Again, As his government of the world is exercised and administrated by them, they are called at one time principalities, at another, powers, at another, dominions. Colossians 1.16, Ephesians 1.21 Lastly, as the glory of God in some measure dwells in them, they are also termed thrones. Though as to this last designation, I am unwilling to speak positively, as a different interpretation is equally, if not more, congruous. To say nothing, therefore, of the name of thrones, the former names are often employed by the Holy Spirit in commendation of the dignity of angelic service. Nor is it right to pass by, unhonored, those instruments by which God specially manifests the presence of His power. Nay, they are more than once called gods, because the deity is in some measure represented to us in their service, as in a mirror. I am rather inclined, however, to agree with ancient writers that in those passages wherein it is stated that the angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham, Jacob, and Moses, Christ was the angel. Still it is true that when mention is made of all the angels, they are frequently so designated. Nor ought this to seem strange. For if princes and rulers have this honor given them, because in their office they are vicegerents of God... The supreme King and Judge, with far greater reason, may be given to angels, in whom the brightness of the divine glory is much more conspicuously displayed. Section six. But the point on which the Scriptures specially insist is that which tends most to our comfort and to the confirmation of our faith, namely, that angels are the ministers and dispensers of the divine bounty towards us. Accordingly, we are told how they watch for our safety, how they undertake our defence, direct our path. And take heed that no evil befall us. There are whole passages which relate, in the first instance, to Christ, the head of the church, and after him to all believers. Quote, He shall give his angels charge over thee, to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. Unquote. Again, quote, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them, that fear him, and delivereth them. Unquote by these passages the lord shows that the protection of those whom he has undertaken to defend he has delegated to his angels accordingly an angel of the lord consoles hagar in her flight and bids her be reconciled to her mistress abraham promises to his servant that an angel will be the guide of his journey Jacob and blessing Ephraim and Manasseh praise "The angel which redeemed me from all evil, blessed the lads." Unquote. So an angel was appointed to guard the camp of the Israelites. And as often as God was pleased to deliver Israel from the hands of his enemies, he stirred up avengers by the ministry of angels. Thus, in fine, not to mention more, angels ministered to Christ, and were present with him in all straits. To the women they announced his resurrection to the disciples they foretold his glorious advent. In discharging the office of our protectors, they war against the devil and all our enemies, and execute vengeance upon those who afflict us. Thus we read that an angel of the Lord, to deliver Jerusalem from siege, slew one hundred and eighty-five thousand men in the camp of the king of Assyria in a single night. Section 7 Whether or not each believer has a single angel assigned to him for his defense, I dare not positively affirm. When Daniel introduces the angel of the Persians and the angel of the Greeks, he undoubtedly intimates that certain angels are appointed as a kind of presidents over kingdoms and provinces. Again, when Christ says that the angels of children always behold the face of his Father, he insinuates that there are certain angels to whom their safety has been entrusted. But I know not if it can be inferred from this that each believer has his own angel. This, indeed, I hold for certain, that each of us is cared for, not by one angel merely, but that all with one consent watch for our safety. For it is said of all the angels, collectively, that they rejoice, quote, over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance, unquote. It is also said that the angels, meaning more than one, carried the soul of Lazarus into Abraham's bosom, nor was it, to no purpose, that Elisha showed his servant the many chariots of fire which were specially allotted him. There is one passage which seems to intimate somewhat more clearly that each individual has a separate angel. When Peter, after his deliverance from prison, knocked at the door of the house where the brethren were assembled, being unable to think it could be himself, they said that it was his angel. This idea seems to have been suggested to them by a common belief that every believer has a single angel assigned to him. Here, however, it may be alleged that there is nothing to prevent us from understanding it of any one of the angels to whom the Lord might have given the charge of Peter at that particular time without implying that he was to be his perpetual guardian, according to the vulgar imagination. See Calvin on Mark 5, 9. That two angels, a good and a bad, as a kind of genii, are assigned to each individual. After all, it is not worth while anxiously to investigate a point which does not greatly concern us. If anyone does not think it enough to know that all the orders of the heavenly host are perpetually watching for his safety, I do not see what he could gain by knowing that he has one angel as a special guardian. Those, again, who limit the care which God takes of each of us to a single angel, do great injury to themselves and to all the members of the Church, as if there were no value in those promises of auxiliary troops who, on every side encircling and defending us, embolden us to fight more manfully. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts are on the web at www. Canada T6L3T5 If you do not have a web connection please request a free printed catalog If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list please send an email to add at SWRB.com or SWRB at SWRB.com with the word add in the subject line SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list so once you've sent us your email address you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied your email information will be kept confidential and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26:3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.